Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We find ourselves at an interesting juncture at this point. Not only is Proverbs about to move into the next section of the book, by the way, you can open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 22, but we also find ourselves preparing to read the words, apply your mind to knowledge It's pleasant for you if you keep that knowledge, keep that wisdom within you so that your trust may be in the Lord. Trust in Yahweh is the primary theme of the book of Proverbs that begins by telling us that the fear of the Lord, the proper reverence of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here we are at this moment needing to trust the Lord. Six months from now, or maybe even three months from now, people will look back on this moment in time, and either it will have been an overreaction to something that turned out to not be that big a deal, or they will look back at it and say, that was the beginning of the pandemic that is currently wiping people out. We'll know what the reality is a couple months from now. Either way, our only options right now are to trust the Lord, which is exactly what the Proverbs are going to tell us to do yet again. Trust the Lord. Now, churches all over the place are suspending their meetings, and you know my thoughts on it. You know what I said on Sunday. If you watch it closely, if you observe it, this really is sort of a demonstration of what churches by and large believe. Perhaps they're doing it out of an abundance of caution, but it also kind of exposes, I think, one of the larger problems with the church world, which is too many churches have drawn a crowd, have constructed a congregation by telling people that the purpose for gathering as a church is to benefit them as people. The reason you're here is for what you can get out of it. Mm-hmm. This is good for you. We have programs for your kids. We have programs for, we have karate and we have marriage counseling and we have all these things. We're, we're basically just a social club that benefits you. And so if that is the case, if that's how you view meeting together as a church, then it's very easy to suspend that. Because once you say, well, now there is a very communicable disease going around, of course you would suspend it because that doesn't benefit you. And it wouldn't be a question of who do you trust? Do you trust the Lord? It's a matter of we're not going to get together because it no longer benefits me. But the reason, the purpose for churches gathering congregations that belong to God all the way back into the Old Testament, the reason that the people of God gathered together as groups, it's always for the purpose of worshiping God. God is the focus. God is the purpose. 
And it's never for you. It's never what is comfortable, what is advantageous, what is good for you. It's always been because God is holy, righteous, sovereign, and he deserves and in fact demands his worship. And that's why people get together. So I'm not saying in some heroic way that GCA is going to stay open because, you know, we're just more biblical than other people. What I'm saying is we really genuinely believe in the sovereignty of God. We really actually believe that he's in charge of what happens. And if you're going to get this virus that's going around, you're just as easily going to get it going to the store or going to work, being out doing the stuff that human beings do. Actually, I think, within the confines of the church, you're less likely to get it because you're in a community of people you actually know, people who care about you, people who wouldn't be here if they were sick. Whereas when you walk into the store, you don't know where those people just came from or where they're going. They walk by the aisle. (coughs) The next thing you know, you've got it. So... I think of all the things that we ought to keep doing, especially at a time like this, is that we ought to keep worshiping God. Because after all, if it turns out that three months from now, we look back on this period as the the beginnings of what became a pandemic that has killed thousands or millions of people, we'll look back on this day as the beginning of that, Well, then we should be crying out to God already. We should be saying to God that we recognize his lordship, his sovereignty over all things, and we should be calling to him for mercy and protection. Now, one of the attributes of God that we see all the way through the Bible is that he does protect his people. Whether you're looking back when he sent Israel into Egypt, when he brought the plagues, The Israelites that were living in the land of Goshen were protected from those plagues. God knows how to pour out his righteous indignation on his enemies and to preserve his own people. If we believe that, if we believe the Bible, then we ought to be willing to place ourselves in his hands and still give him the worship that he rightly deserves and, in fact, rightly demands. So here we are in Proverbs 22, and right away we're going to read that your trust needs to be in the Lord. And we're told that that is a word of wisdom. That is a saying from wise people, trust the Lord. So I guess my question is, do you? Do you actually trust the Lord? And if you do trust the Lord, I'm not saying you should tempt the Lord. I'm not saying throw yourself in front of a bus because you're bulletproof until the day that God's going to take you home. So we're not going to say be stupid. Don't run around licking each other's hands because that would just be weird. So we're not saying tempt the Lord your God, but we're saying that as long as we as a group are healthy people and as long as we as a group are dependent on God to provide us with everything we have, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, 60 minutes every hour, 60 seconds every minute, we're constantly dependent on him. Well, then he deserves the time that we give him. The people who are in this room tonight are all here because we're not the people who have been infected. Why? Because God has protected us. 
if God decides that some of us should get sick later on, he's still going to preserve us. He's still going to protect us. And the worst thing that's going to happen is that pandemic that's going around the world is going to take us home, even as it's bringing other people to judgment. So we either trust that the sovereign God knows what he's doing and continue to place ourselves in his hands and continue to worship him because he deserves it, or we demonstrate that we think church is there to serve us, and when it's inconvenient, we just won't be part of it. When it's inconvenient and when it doesn't benefit people, that's when we're going to shut the doors. Mm. Well, I don't think that's the proper attitude. So we are in Proverbs 22. We're starting at verse 17. Now, Proverbs 22, verse 17 is the beginning of a section that can only be called the sayings of the wise. Solomon has apparently assembled a collection of words of wisdom that he has also passed on to his son. And he begins at verse 17 by saying, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. And then there are going to be 30 sayings in a row that come to their climax in chapter 24, verse 23, where you'll read, these also are the sayings of the wise. So this is a section of sayings that are not all just single verse couplets, comparisons, contrasts. Sometimes it takes a couple of verses in order to keep these sayings intact. And most of these sayings you will recognize as things that Solomon has already covered. In other words, these are sayings that Solomon knows, that Solomon has collected, and they've influenced the words that he has passed on throughout this book. The big topic headings are going to be very much the same. You're going to hear about not oppressing the poor and not cheating and lying and not being surety for somebody else's debt. Those are all things that Solomon has already told us in the previous Proverbs. And now he's saying, it's not just me. These are actually the words of the wise. The sayings of the wise say the same things. So Proverbs 22, verse 17 begins, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. Applying your mind to knowledge is is a concept that's going to keep coming up as we've seen all the way through Proverbs. There's a verse coming up that says that you should buy knowledge. In other words, whatever investment you can put forward, whatever it takes, accumulate knowledge, accumulate wisdom to yourself. And then the proverb is, buy it and sell it not. In other words, don't get rid of it. Don't abandon it, even if some better offer comes along, somebody's willing to give you something for it. You should do whatever you have to do. You should invest whatever you have to invest into getting the understanding, the knowledge that will carry you through life. And don't get rid of it. Don't sell it. So Solomon's version of it here is apply your mind to my knowledge. Don't just hear these proverbs. Don't just listen to them and say, well, that's 
a clever philosophical thought or, gee, that's a good sociological idea. He's saying, really think about them. Really consider them. Really apply your mind to them. When you've seen things like treating the poor fairly or be careful how you talk, be careful how you speak to other people, it means don't just read that and think, boy, it's a good thing someone else heard that because they need to be aware of that within themselves. We all need to think of all these things within ourselves and we need to really apply diligence to understanding it and accumulating it, buying it, investing in it, and applying that knowledge to our lives rather than just reading it and saying, well, intellectually, that's interesting, that's stimulating. Mm. Instead, you actually have to apply it to your life. And of course, the first of those words of wisdom that you have to think about and apply is trust the Lord. He keeps coming back to that. If you don't have the proper reverence, the proper fear of God, then no amount of advice about how you should live is going to count for anything. If your life, your style of life, your worldview, your mode of living, if that doesn't start with God and God is sovereign, God's in charge, and I can trust him, then all the rest of the advice about investing wisely isn't really going to help you. All you're going to become is a wise investing fool. And ultimately, you're going to be judged for that. So the wisdom ought to produce in you fear of God, trust of God, and then ultimately, that's going to lead to eternal life. So it's going to affect your walk and your way right here and now, but it's leading to eternal consequences, as we're also going to see tonight. So incline your ear, hear the words of the wise, Apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you. That word can also mean beneficial. It's good for you to keep these things in mind. Keep these things within you. Don't just learn them and then walk away. Sort of like Paul saying, it's like a man who observes himself in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looked like. Don't just read these things, but apply these things. Apply them to your heart, to your mind, to your conscience, to your way, to your walk. This is solid life advice because it is based in the fear of the Lord, confidence in God, and trust in God regardless of the circumstances. Which again is why I think it's kind of providential that that's where we ended up tonight. And I was thinking about that today again and thinking, you know, Months ago, when we decided we were going to do Proverbs next, and I was asking people, what book should we go after next? God knew when we started Proverbs, and he knew what weeks we would miss, and he knew that right now in the midst of the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak, that we'd be right here in this passage that says, it's good for you to trust the Lord. It's good for you to hold on. I mean, talk about providence. And you can really only see that kind of providence and understand that kind of providence if you understand that God is sovereign. 
And by the way, you can only meet together on a regular basis, regardless of the circumstances, and still come and tell God how much you trust him and praise and worship him and pray to him if you believe that God is sovereign. The only reason to abandon the worship of God is because you think there's nothing he can do about stuff. You don't really think he's sovereign. You know, the type of thinking that says, well, God is in charge of big stuff, but tornadoes, he's not in that, or bad stuff, earthquakes, he's not in that. The God of the Bible is in absolutely everything. As we just read out of Isaiah a couple of weeks ago, a couple of Sundays ago, God said that he's the only God that is, and he said, I bring the good, and I bring, the King James says, the evil, the word means the trouble, the distresses of life. God says, I, the Lord, do all these things. So the only God of the Bible is, in fact, the maker of heaven and earth, is, in fact, in control of the creation of human beings and the ultimate destiny of human beings. That God is in charge of every planet and every cell and every virus, and that God is still on his throne doing whatsoever pleases him. And if we know that, we can get up every day and go do what he expects of us. It will be good for you if you keep this wisdom, if you keep this teaching within you, not just in your brain, keep it in your heart so that they may be ready on your lips. That's really interesting language. Solomon is saying, if this is in you, if it's really part of you, then it's going to come out of you. It's going to be what you say. It's going to be what you talk about. It's going to be the advice that you give other people. If people ask, you're going to have the ready answer because you know the word of God. And it's a great comfort. I I don't mean to keep kind of harping on our current situation, but people right now are looking for comfort. They're looking for somebody who knows something. Right now, the world is fairly chaotic. Right now, people don't know if they're going to work or not. They don't know if the stores are going to be open or not. When they get there, they don't know what they're going to find. They're looking for some words of security and comfort. And those words of security and comfort are found here in the Bible. And the more you know about the word of God, the more you're able to speak those words of comfort. Because it, it doesn't mean anything to anybody if Charlie says, oh, it's going to be all right. We would have every right to ask Charlie, how do you know? You don't know anything the rest of us don't know. But if you know that the God of heaven and earth is in charge of time and circumstance, and that he brings the good and he brings the trouble, if you know that and he says it's going to be all right, then you know confidently it's going to be all right. And that's the same God who says repeatedly to his people, fear not, which is just another version of it's going to be all right. And again, worst case scenario, let's say that you do get the virus and it does kill you. You go home. You wake up in glory. In other words, it's going to be all right. Or you're going to get sick and you're going to recover because of the power of God that's going to bring you back to health. Either way, it's going to be all right. So don't be afraid. Don't worry. It's going to work out. For it will be good for you if you keep this wisdom within you so that they may be ready, so that these 
words of wisdom will be ready on your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. So Solomon said the reason for all this, the collective knowledge of the book of Proverbs and now the wisdom of other people that he's collected and that he's reciting, the purpose of all of it is to teach you what's really important. And that starts with trust the Lord. Verse 20 says, have I not written to you these excellent things, these wise things, these things that are above natural human reasoning, these things that are not just folly. I have written to you things of excellence, things of quality, things of counsel, and things of knowledge. So he's writing about the counsel of other people, the wisdom of other people, and he's already offered his own counsel and his own wisdom, and he expects you to understand it, to read it, to think about it, to muse on it, to apply your mind to it, and then walk it out and live it out so that it's on your lips, it's part of who you are, what's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. To make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may correctly answer to him who sent you. So that's one long question, verses 20 and 21. It goes like this. I'll try to put the proper inflection on it. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer to him who has sent you? In other words, if somebody says, what's the answer? Go find the truth. Go find the answer. You're able to answer them. You're able to tell them, to reassure them, to counsel them, because the truth is already with you and in you. And then verse 22 is the first of these 30 sayings of the wise. And the first of them is a really common theme. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. Most major cities, we know it was true at Jerusalem, when you read about Peter and John, and they found the lame man whom they healed, they found him at the gate. That's where the lame, the afflicted, the poor would normally gather, because that was the place that they could beg. They would beg alms from people. And so he says, don't crush the afflicted at the gate. When you go to the gate of the city and you see the poor there and you see the afflicted, don't rob them, don't destroy them, which is what the crushing is. Don't take advantage of them, in other words. Just because they are poor and you have more than they do, so you're societally more important than they are, don't think that that gives you the right to crush them. They are also made in the image of God. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. Why? Because the Lord, again, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh himself, will plead their case. You don't want to get dragged into court and have the opposing lawyer be God. You don't want to have to answer for how you mistreated people who were made in the image of God when it's God himself who is standing and accusing you. Not only is he accusing you, but he's the judge. 
There's just no way around that kind of accusation. Don't rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause and he will take the life of those who rob them. Now, this is not as obvious in the English language, but in the Hebrew, you see the the clever bit of wordplay. And you're going to see that a couple times in a few of these sayings of the wise. The wordplay is, don't rob the poor because God is going to take the life, rob the life of the person who does it. So the wordplay is, don't rob the poor or God will rob you. So don't take from them or the Lord will take from you. He'll take the life of those who rob the poor. Verse 24, do not associate with a man given to anger or don't go to a hot-tempered man. I think that's generally just good advice anyway. Nobody likes being around somebody who's always angry. Can you think of anybody who's always upset, always angry? People who thrive on bad news and anger. It's very easy to think of somebody who's like that. And the truth is, they do not improve your life. They don't improve your situation. They make your situation worse. So not only is this good applicable advice, but it's good wisdom. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. Why? Verse 25 is going to tell you why. Lest you learn his ways. In other words, when you're around hot-tempered, angry people, you're more likely to become hot-tempered and angry yourself. Because at some point, they're going to say something that's going to make you go, yeah, yeah, right. Who does Trump think he is? Or whatever. You're just going to join into the argument. Yeah, our employer's not treating us right. Yeah, I'm angry. That's how you get mobs in the streets. That's how you get groups of people who are all upset. It always started with one guy who was upset enough to assemble a crowd of people who are also as upset as he is. So don't associate with them. Stay away from that so that your temperament remains even and calm. And again, that you do trust in the Lord. If you become hot-tempered and angry about everything that happens in your life, that is tantamount to saying, God doesn't know what he's doing. He's placed me right here. He's put me in this situation. And I don't think it's right. I don't think it's fair. I don't think this is the way my life ought to go. Therefore, God doesn't know what he's doing. Anger is the opposite of all the positive attributes of godliness. Love, patience, long-suffering. Anger cuts all those things short. So you're told not to associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man lest you learn his ways and then find yourself in a snare. You're going to find yourself in a trap. So again, this is just really good advice. In other words, this is what's good for you. If you find yourself going down the road of constant anger, and I know this because I used to be a very quick-tempered person. When I was in my 20s, I was a real hothead. You reach the point 
when you're constantly upset about things, constantly looking for something else where you feel you've been cheated, you've been wrong, therefore you can be angry about it. When you get like that, it actually gets good to you. You start to feel good about it because you start thinking, I deserve to be angry and I deserve to let people know my opinion. I deserve to yell at people because they've done me wrong. It, it just consumes you. It eats you up and it makes you into the kind of person that people don't want to be around. I've told this story enough times, but it was my own brother who came to me at one point and said, has it occurred to you that nobody likes you? And I said, well, sure they do. Yeah, I mean, dig me. I'm cool. I play big concerts. I make records. Everybody thinks I'm cool. And he said, okay, it's, you're at LAX at 3 in the morning. And nobody wants to go to LAX. There's never a reason to go to LAX. Avoid LAX at all costs. And he says, okay, you're at LAX at 3 in the morning. Who are you going to call that doesn't work for you? I couldn't think of anybody. I didn't have anybody who I thought liked me enough that they would risk LAX at 3 in the morning for my sake. Okay, well, that's what happens. That's the snare. That's what you get caught up in. If you start getting angry at somebody and it feels good to you, so you think you ought to be angry at them all the time, this becomes a regular part of how you deal with them. You're constantly angry, or you're angry at your work, or you're angry at your boss, or you're angry at your wife, or your husband, or you're angry at your kids, or you're angry. You're just constantly angry at everybody. At some point, you're angry at God. And it is God who is, as we already said, preserving you 24 hours a day. And you have no right to be that kind of angry considering the grace of God that has been taking care of you so well all these years. So in other words, check your anger. Check yourself. And recognize that God has been kind and good and gracious to you. Now that, by the way, is the answer. The theological answer to constant anger is what's God like? And do you actually believe in the God of the Bible? Or are you only interested in the God of the Bible for how he could benefit you? Or do you actually worship the God of the Bible? Do you want to properly represent the God of the Bible? Are you an emissary of the God of the Bible? Do you walk through this life in a way where people are likely to ask you about the hope that is within you so that you can give the defense? All of those are biblical concepts that have to come from observing what God himself is like And because he's good and gracious and kind and long-suffering, then we who are his people who claim to have his spirit inside us should also be kind and gracious and long-suffering and good. Especially to those people who are near us, dependent on us. We ought to be demonstrating love and kindness and goodness to them. So this is a very wise saying. This is a saying of a wise man. Solomon doesn't tell us who says it, but do not associate with a man given to anger. And don't go with a hot-tempered man, lest you learn his ways and you find a snare for yourself. Verse 26. Do not be among those who give pledges. Solomon has already brought that up. We should be familiar with this. He says, don't be surety for someone else's debt. Don't be among those who become sureties for debts. Because 
If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? What Solomon is saying is, if you become surety for somebody else's debt, and then he doesn't pay on the debt, you have to pay the debt. And if you can't afford the debt, they're going to come and take your furniture. They're going to come and take your bed. They're going to come and take whatever they got to take because you made yourself surety for the debt. Why did you even put yourself in that position to begin with? And we have talked about that many times through the book of Proverbs. Being wise also includes being wise financially, being wise in the way that you treat and deal with other people in an honest way in a way where you're demonstrating wisdom, and part of wisdom is don't get yourself trapped in debt. Debt, especially in the modern world, is uh, wrapped up in interest. I hate interest, just so you know. Me, personally, I hate interest. To me, interest is just giving somebody my hard-earned money. I'm not purchasing anything with it. I just, uh, here, have my money. Here, take my money and go. But I think if you're buying a house, you're buying a car or something like that, I understand it. Get as low an interest rate as you can get and then get out of that debt as quickly as you can. But then Solomon's extension of not being in debt is even if you have to carry some debt for yourself, don't ever be in debt for somebody else's debt. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I could get Kenneth to pay off my house, I would. I'd be happy to make that deal. By the way, my house is paid off. So you're free and clear. So you're good. But if I could pawn off my debts, I would happily go buy a new car tomorrow if I could get any of you to pay for it. If I could get Tom to tote the note, then yeah, I'm getting a new car right away. So Solomon says the foolish part would be taking on somebody else's debt because once that person knows that he's not responsible for the debt, if he doesn't pay it, you have to pay it, and then you're in trouble. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Verse 28. Do not move the ancient boundary. And we're going to have to talk about what that means for a moment. Boundary stones were used to designate property lines. And having property lines was very important, not only because that designated who actually owned the land, but the produce that was grown on that land or the animals that were grazing on that land. The ownership was designated by the boundary stones. One of the ways that you could steal from a neighbor would be to move those stones and argue, no, no, the stones are over here. I own all this property. And in fact, that was such an important concept that it's even said in the law. If you would, Tom, look up Deuteronomy 19.14, and the rest of us are going to go look up Deuteronomy 27. And I continue to contend that Deuteronomy is just a fun word to say, especially if you're speaking about something that is deuteronomical. That's just fun to say. It's like cinnamon and aluminum and linoleum. Those are just fun words to say. Tom, you've got Deuteronomy 19.14. What does that say? 
you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you to possess. So the concept behind it is, it's God who designated property lines. And if you go back and read about the children of Israel going into the land that they were promised, the land with, of milk and honey, it's God who designated where the various different tribes were going to be, what their properties were, that the Levites didn't get any properties, and then dividing it up among families. And so those marker stones were established by the ancient men, by the forefathers. They determined what family groups, what tribes got what land. And so right in the Deuteronomical law, it is said, don't move those things. Solomon picks it up and and says, that's just wisdom. Don't do it. Because if you move a boundary stone, an ancient boundary, which the fathers have set, if you do that, you're stealing, which is one of the commandments. Don't steal. So if you are robbing your neighbor, you would do that by acquiring his land through moving the stones. And Israel was told very specifically not to do that. I said everybody else go to uh, Deuteronomy 27. We're interested in verse 17. This is when they got to Mount Ebal. And yet again, Moses and the Levitical priests are reciting, speaking to all of Israel, saying, listen, O Israel, this day you've become a people for the Lord your God. And then they're setting out certain rules, certain standards. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day. And Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, when you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon and Levi and Judah, Issachar, Joseph and Benjamin. And for the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben and Gad and Asher and Zebulun and Dan and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. So this is a really important time. This is a time of blessings and cursings divided up by the leaders of the tribes. And Moses is laying out rules and statutes for when they go into the land of Israel after their 40 years of marching in the wilderness. So whatever rules are laid out here are really top drawer, really important standards and it starts with, cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, amen. So the requirement of all the people of Israel was to amen what God had just laid out as the standard. Now, I just read all that so that you understand the importance of this moment and how important these particular standards are. It starts with no other gods before me. No idols. Don't make an idol even in secret because God sees in secret. And then all the people of Israel were required to say, yes, amen. Yes, what God said. Yes, absolutely. Behind that, verse 16, Cursed is he who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. That's even one of the 
Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. Okay, I can see why those things are in the list. And the very next one is, cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. And all the people will say, amen. That's how high this standard was. It's right up there with don't make graven images, honor your father and mother. The rule after it in verse 18 is, Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. I mean, that's just cruelty. If you're misleading blind people on the road, and then all the people have to say amen. And cursed is he who distorts the justice that's due to an alien or an orphan or a widow. And all the people say amen. And cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt. And all the people will say amen. That's the level to which this rule rises. Don't move a marker stone. The marker stones designate what belongs to who. And don't you, through your thievery, move a marker stone to your own benefit. So you can see why Solomon, in reciting wise sayings from the people who have genuine wisdom, these wise sayings would include, don't move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. And you'll notice that there's no explanation of why the previous Words of wisdom also had a why. Because that's going to be a snare for you. Because that's not beneficial for you. But this one doesn't even have a why because I think it's inherent in the rule. The why is because God said it. It's already in the law and you've already amended it. So don't do it. By the way, look over at chapter 23. You only get to verse 10 before you read, Do not move the ancient boundary. And go into the fields of the fatherless. Now, a moment ago, when we were reading out of Deuteronomy, we were reading, don't take advantage of the fatherless, the widows. Here it's picked up again. Don't move an ancient boundary. Don't go into the fields of the fatherless. Just because somebody has lost the patriarch of the family doesn't mean that the land is up for grabs. Don't move the boundary and think that you can just Assume that land to yourself. Why? Because verse 11 says, For their Redeemer, who is God himself, is strong and will plead their case against you. So God will defend the widows and the fatherless, the orphans, the poor, the ones who have nothing. And if you cheat them, if you do anything to benefit yourself and in so doing, end up robbing them, stealing from them, cheating them, then God himself is going to be their attorney, and he's going to plead their case against you. So you've really set yourself up for a lose-lose situation. Mm -hmm. I am the master of understatement. So then back to the very end of chapter 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. I think that falls into the same category as Solomon saying repeatedly not to be lazy, to get up every day and go do the work. He's saying 
a man skilled at his work, you can only become skilled at what you do by doing it, by doing it repeatedly, by either being apprenticed at something and then applying what you've learned. The only way that you can become skilled at your task is to get out there and do it. And that's made more obvious by the fact that that man who does the work, who's not lazy, who gets up and becomes really good at what he does, he's going to have advancement. He's going to get promoted. I tell my children, when you go into a job, the first thing you should do is make yourself indispensable. Do your job so well that they can't imagine operating without you. Be skilled at what you do, and what's going to result is you're going to get advancement, you're going to get promotion, all the way up to standing before the king, which in Israel was the greatest advancement you could get to actually serve before the king. And the alternative, the contrary to that is, you're not going to stand before obscure men. In other words, you're not going to work your way down by being really good at what you do. You're going to work your way up. You're going to be promoted up until you're standing before kings. Yes, sir. I once worked for a fellow who described his relationship between himself and his employees as looking to the employees and saying, it's your job to make me look good, and it's my job to make you want to make me look good and be rewarded accordingly. Mm -hmm. And with one sentence... He kind of laid it out in very simple terms. Here's our relationship. Here's how we both profit from it. Absolutely. That's just good management. Yeah. We've got a couple minutes. Let's go into a little bit of chapter 23. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is in front of you. Now, the reason you have to consider carefully the spread that's laid before you. He's going to talk about the delicacies and the food that's laid before you. Look at the second half of verse 3. It says, it is deceptive food. In other words, for what reason is this ruler calling you in? He might not be calling you in to honor you. He might be calling you in to size you up, to figure out whether you're do advancement, or even to trip you up. You never know what the purpose is. Solomon says here, he's calling you in for a deceptive reason. He's putting food in front of you for deceptive reasons. So here's what he says to do. Consider carefully what is put before you, and instead of using your knife to cut the food and eat the food, put the knife to your throat which is just another way he's not saying commit suicide. He's saying instead, use that knife to keep yourself from eating. Mm. Use that knife to keep yourself from gluttony. Put the knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. So if you're likely to sit down at another man's table, especially a ruler's table, and he's sizing you up, and all he sees of you is that you're a greedy glutton, well, then what's the likelihood that he's going to give you advancements? What's the likelihood that he's going to trust you? He's going to be able to size you up by it. So verse 3 says, don't desire his delicacies, which means his, his sweets, you know, the good things that are on the table. Don't even desire that. Don't take advantage of those things, because if you do, 
Those are a deceptive food to you. They've given away what's really inside you. So the whole of those three verses, I think, is really about self-control. It's really about not seeing what somebody else has. Somebody else has this table that's full of luxurious foods and sweets, and, and you become the glutton over it. You just got to have it. He's saying you've lost your self-control, and that's going to become a demonstration of what you really are, so that food's going to serve deceptively to expose you. Mm. So be wise. When you walk into, when you have an opportunity to take advantage of, in this case, great amounts of food, self-control is always the right answer. And I think self-control is the right answer in pretty much every avenue of life. Mm. You're never supposed to be the glutton. If there's something in front of you, be moderate in your response to it. And that is going to speak well of you, especially if you're sitting down in front of a ruler or a boss or anybody else who has authority over you. When they're sizing you up, when they're judging you, they're going to judge you much more kindly for your moderation than they're ever going to judge you for your greed and your gluttony. Got it? Okay. I do like the phrase, though. Put the knife to your throat. I, I just, I find that humorous. Don't use it for your food. Use it to stop yourself. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. In other words, if wealth, if greed, if that's what you're all about, then you're going to wear yourself out mm -hmm. trying to get wealth in this lifetime. Cease from your consideration of it. If you're wearing yourself out to get money, that's because that's all you think about. All you're thinking about is more, more for me, more. I need to accumulate greater wealth for me. I, I'm obsessed with it. I think about it 24 hours a day. That's all I'm worried about. I'm going to wear myself out to gain wealth because that's all I think about. Well, Solomon's advice is don't weary yourself and then cease it from your consideration. Just stop thinking about it. Stop obsessing over it. Because here's a reality of wealth. This is a reality that I think we could all relate to, and probably everybody knows somebody who's been in this situation. Verse 5 says, Because when you set your eyes on it, it's gone. When you start thinking about money, that's all you're thinking about is money. You're constantly setting your, your mind and your actions. You're obsessing over it, and you set your mind on money. If that's all you're ever concerned with, it's going to disappear. A fool and his money is soon parted. Money disappears. And if that's what you were obsessed over, if that's where you find your sense of value within yourself, then when the money's gone, what are you left with? You're empty. You're a shell. You've got no sense of wellness because you trusted the money instead of trusting God, instead of trusting the Lord. Mm -hmm. You obsessed over the money instead of giving God the proper worship that he deserves. And if you obsess over money, we all know that money disappears. One of the things we're seeing on the news right now is the number of people who have just taken a bath in the stock market. All the gains that have increased in the stock market since Trump became president have disappeared in the last couple of weeks. 
and people are watching their 401ks just disappear. So money has a way of dissipating on you. And if your life is wrapped up in the money, when the money is gone, what are you left with? And what is your evaluation of yourself and what was important in your life? When you set your eyes on it, it's gone for wealth certainly makes itself wings. I just find that an amusing phrase. <laughs> we would just say, man, money just flies away. Money just falls between my fingers. The wise man Solomon is quoting says, money grows wings. And it just flies away. And then what are you left with if that's all that was important to you in this lifetime? Do not eat the bread of a selfish man. Now he's going to tell you why. Don't desire his delicacies. Don't desire his food, his sweets. If he sets a table in front of you, don't participate in it for this reason. Verse 7. For as he thinks within himself, so is he. In other words, if he's a selfish man, that's how he's described. He's a selfish man then within himself, what he thinks about himself, he is selfish. He thinks selfish ways. He craves the stuff that he has placed in front of you, and he doesn't really want you to eat it or drink it. He's just telling you to eat it and drink it, even as he's craving it for himself. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. Why? Because his heart, his inner intention, is greed. His inner intention is me, more me, more stuff for me. I don't want to share my stuff with you. And so Solomon says, don't eat that kind of bread because you're going to end up not only indebted to them because they're greedy, but you're also going to end up offending them in some way because in their greed, they're not going to like the fact that you're eating their stuff. So better off just to avoid the situation. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. And verse 8, you will vomit up the morsel. That's the NASB rendering of it. It means choke it up, spit it out. You will spit out the morsel that you have eaten and waste your compliments. In other words, it's very typical in the Middle East. If somebody had you over to eat, that it was very necessary that you compliment the person who is putting the food in front of you and that you compliment the food. And those compliments that you've dreamed up, that you've brought to the occasion, those are all going to be wasted because you're not really going to enjoy the food. He describes it as you're just going to spit up the food. So keep yourself out of a situation with a greedy man. If you know somebody who's greedy, the way he thinks is the way he is. And even though he may say to you, no, no, it's all right, you can have that, his heart isn't really with you. He's going to resent you. He's going to resent you taking it from him. Mm. And he's going to believe that you're in debt to him in some way in his greed. So better just to avoid that altogether. So that's it. The clock on the wall tells me that I'm done for tonight. I will make a mark right there, and that's where we will pick up next week. Are you enjoying these life lessons from wise men? Yes. 
Do you see how Solomon began by laying out his proverbs for his son and then is wrapping up by saying, and other men have said similar things. Other, it's not just me. Other men, wise men, intelligent people say the same things. And so he's reciting these 30 sayings of wise men. And that he expects you to let get down into your heart, in your conscience, in your brain, make it part of your life, do whatever you got to do to get it, and then let that be what's in your heart and on your lips. Let that be the way that you conduct yourself with other people. Got all that? And by the way, if you do all that, if you do the things that Solomon's been advocating tonight, then you're not really going to worry when the world seems to be topsy-turvy. And I'm just happy tonight to have used the words cinnamon, aluminum, and topsy-turvy in one sermon. I feel really good about that. (laughs) But yeah, as the world just rocks and roils, and as we were talking about last night at men's group, you've got plagues of locusts on the planet right now that are described in the news as of biblical proportion that are decimating whole fields in minutes. They say it's just, you know, it's a five-minute thing, and the fields that people have been growing through the growing season, just gone, just gone. You got earthquakes in diverse places. There was an earthquake in Utah. Pretty big one, too. Yeah. Earthquakes in diverse places, all kinds of wars and rumors of wars, and Jesus said those are just birth pangs. The world is going to go through that. But trust me, I'm here. I'll look out for you. I know those that are mine. So do we actually trust him? Yes. Well, then we ought to live like we trust him. And if we actually trust him, we certainly ought to worship him. I think that's the big theme, the big takeaway for tonight. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.